You're listening to Think, Think, Thought, a podcast about building thinking classrooms and teaching math. Hi, everyone. Kyle here again with Megan. Hi, everyone. And today we're continuing our little trek through building thinking classrooms in K-12 mathematics by Dr. Peter Lilliedahl. And we just talked about evaluating what we value in chapter 12. Today, we're getting into chapter 13. What's chapter 13 all about, Megan? Well, chapter 13 is all about formative assessment within a thinking classroom. And so the last chapter, we were kind of focused on those uh, behaviors and kind of like what kind of culture we would like to build as a part of our classroom. And I think like this one really focuses heavily on how can we really ensure our students understand what they should know, what they do know, and just how do we give them all of that that information so that they can be successful with the content. But there was so, like this chapter was, I love like this chapter. It was like, I think the first chapter when I first read this book where I was so excited, but there's a lot to it. So what's your big thing you kind of took away from it? Yeah, I mean, there is so much to it. I think this episode might take a different format near the end where we start to talk about some of the challenges with this practice. Um, so if you're interested in hearing that, make sure you listen all the way through. But I think the big takeaway here is we've been talking about formative and summative assessment as long as I've been in education, and he defines them separately. We kind of know this, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. Formative is all about gathering information for the purposes of informing, teaching, and learning. And then summative assessment is all about this whole gathering information for the purposes of grading or reporting. So those are the differences. And what I really like, this was the line that stuck out with me early on, is he says, all assessment and all evaluation should be formative. And some of it will also be summative. So the idea here is that whatever you're doing, it needs to inform our learners and inform our teaching. And I think that's my big takeaway. So they did some research on this. They interviewed some students. They used one simple question that gave them a lot of information. That question was, so you just finished a unit on whatever it was, right? Could be fractions, could be quadratics, whatever the case was. Um, is it a big topic or is it a collection of a bunch of small topics? What kind of results did that question yield, Megan? Well, so about 15% of the students said that the the math unit they just did was a bunch of small topics and they could actually like name them, which was actually pretty great. But surprise, surprise, those were also the students that would score above 90% on the test that was coming up. Now, there were other students who were like, yeah, like, I'm okay. I, you know, I totally get that there are some like subtopics, but they wouldn't be able to like describe them. And then those would be students who would be like 75 to 90%. Like, like that's what they would get on their test. But then the rest of the students just thought that the unit like was just like one big idea, one big thing. And those students would likely get below 75. And this kind of makes sense because the students who saw who saw this as one big thing would struggle to be very, very successful on the tests and and larger summative assessments because they don't because instead of being able to pick apart where they need to fix, they just kind of see it as like, well, I'm just not good at division. Right. Yeah. Instead of being able to like really pinpoint where are those things I need to fix. Yeah, and I think they need to see those different distinctions so they know what they need to work on, like you said, right? But if they're just seeing it as one big topic, they're probably seeing everything in that topic as some random stuff they have to memorize and just learn how to do and copy and mimic, right? Which is what we're really trying to get away from. I like where he takes us next. He gets right into it. He talks about 
giving feedback as an analogy to navigating in the real world. We need to know where we're going and we need to know where we are currently. Because if we don't know where we're going, we're going to get lost. And if we don't know where we are currently, we're already lost. And I thought that was just a, such a good way to simplify how assessment can inform and help our learners. We need to help them know what they don't know so they can get there as well, right? Well, and then I think the nice part about that is that when they recognize that, they were like, oh, we really need to like let students know what are these like subtopics because before when they were talking about evaluation and competencies, the kids know what good group work looks like, but they can break down something like, hey, this is the fractions unit. What are those like little topics? And they don't know that. And they're not really supposed to know that, right? That's kind of for us to do. So I think that they like learn throughout this research that being really explicit about the list of the outcomes or standards or whatever that makes up a unit is really important because then it's but because then it helps kids like realize it's like oh like you know maybe a student's doing great at adding and subtracting proper fractions but it's actually the multiplying and dividing of proper fractions that's the tough part for them right and i think that's a really important part is to be explicit with them because they, they just don't 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 all these things so this wouldn't be something where we would want to co-collaborate like we did before yeah not at this point although collaborating with another teacher would be a great mm -hmm. which we'll talk about more later um so on page 235 in the book if you happen to have the book he introduces us to these first instances of what he calls these navigation instruments and if you don't have a book we'll link an image in the show notes so you can just click that and see what we're talking about here but essentially what they look like they kind of look like a rubric at first class there is table Across the top, they've got some labels. The top left is the topic. And then there's a column that says basic, a column that says intermediate, and a column that says advanced. And then below that, on the left side of the table, each row has a different subtopic within the unit. And then there's room to put stuff where they intersect, where that subtopic intersects with intermediate or whatever. That's kind of how it goes. So, for example, one of the instruments, and he gives us this example in the book, if you're doing one on fraction operations, you might have a row that says adding proper fractions. And in the three columns, you'd have, you know, maybe in the basic column, you'd have an example that shows adding with a common denominator. Intermediate, you might not have a common denominator, but you have a denominator that's a multiple of the other. And then in the advanced column, you might have adding, but with no common denominators and no common factors. So you can kind of see the different progression of those. And I think that's helpful for students to see what level a question might fall in. And then you'd add another row for doing this with mixed fractions and another for subtraction and so on and so forth. Depending on the topic, this is going to look different in different grade levels, different content areas, whatever the case is. But what goes in those boxes, Megan? Because there's a lot of blank space once you have these set up. Yeah. So I've done this with my four fives for most of last year. And I just put different examples of what like in each of those like looks like. And I found this to be incredibly helpful because the students had a really good understanding of what a basic level was, right? And the students were like, oh, okay, this makes sense why this would be basic. And you just put one quick little example and it really does help the kids kind of understand what that question even means because you're going to use that language a lot for the rest of the year. So you so they need to to understand what that vocabulary means as we start to use it more and more like basic, intermediate, advanced, stuff like that. Yeah, and I know some teachers, instead of putting examples in, because sometimes the examples get big, especially as we get into higher levels of math. Yeah. 
they'll just like put a like a number that references either a question and check your understanding yeah. or textbook or where, whatever, somewhere that they can actually look at. Cause I think that's important. If you just put numbers in there and nowhere for them to look at them, it kind of defeats the purpose. So one thing to keep in mind is that not all of these subtopics in these little tables, these navigation instruments, as Peter calls them, necessarily has something for every level. So often you'll see like definitions as one of the rows. There's only a basic level for that. There's So you gray out yeah. immediate and advanced because you don't need to get there. But maybe that advanced problem solving type questions, those ones might not have a basic level. They might, basic might be grayed out and the rest have examples or things mm-hmm. to reference. So when it comes to making these, how, how do you know what is a subtopic? Yeah. Well, I think that one of the the like easiest ways to do it is to kind of put yourself into a um, test making mode, right? And like pretend like you are actually assembling a test and you're like, okay, I know that for this I need to have one question where where my um, students need to like add a three digit number and I know that I need to have this and I know that I need to have them working through regrouping and just think about a test and I would say more often than not, you will see that everything you would put in a test or some sort of summative assessment, those are your subtopics because you're kind of telling yourself that that's what you think is the most valuable, like content knowledge for this particular unit. Yeah, those are the things we want our students to be able to do. So they make sense being the things that occupy those rows. If you've happened to follow along with Thinking Classrooms over the last few years since the book has come out, or maybe you follow on Twitter or one of the massive Facebook groups, you'll know that a lot of teachers have shifted away from this idea of basic, intermediate, and advanced in the book. And now it's been replaced with this idea of mild, medium, and spicy. And I really like this. It's yeah, fun. me too. <laughs> Kids have really liked this. Teachers have really liked yeah. this. And I think it says something about those those old labels. Because it turns out, I think, this is kind of the theory behind it, that kids see themselves as the label at the top of these navigation instruments. I'm, I'm either a basic student, intermediate student, advanced student, maybe beginner, depending on the labels you use. But they don't see that when we're talking about mild, medium, and spicy, right? They they describe the tasks, not the doer of the tasks. And I really like that. You use mild, medium, and spicy. How have your students responded to that? Yeah. So actually the very first one we used was basic, intermediate, and advanced. So so I had a um, interesting experience where the first unit we did with these was basic, intermediate, advanced. And then, but then right after that unit, before I started the next one, I said, hey guys, I'm thinking about maybe switching this to mild, medium, and spicy. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. They're like so excited. But I do feel like, because part of it too is like, they still felt like they like related to the basic, intermediate, and best. And I think it still sounded just a little too mathy, right? Mm-hmm. It just sounded, you know, a bit too too much like traditional math, whereas mild, medium, spicy just feels different. And so I found my students really, really like liked them. And they were a big fan of that terminology. And we just kind of kept going with it after that. So, so they responded well to the renaming of the categories on this navigation instrument set like that. So we have these navigation instruments, we've made them, they've got, you know, the subtopics, they've got our mild, medium, spicy, or whatever you choose to use across yeah. the top. How do we actually use them when it comes time to do formative assessment for ourselves and for our students? Well, so this is what I did last year was every student got the big map that had the examples like in them. And like that one takes up a full page. Like, like that one is a landscape full page because you want to be able to 
show exactly what's going to going to be in there unless you put letters and numbers like you described uh however for the other one you just have it as half a page and then but that one every student gets a blank kind of map and then whenever you see students doing something or they've handed something in that you know allows you to kind of gather some data around what they know and what they understand that's when you just kind of fill it out it does have it that like and we'll talk about how we've put our flavor like on this as well but ideally you want to be able to have all of the students on a clipboard and just be able to flip that to flip to them and then on page just trying to see which page it was it's page 240 in the chapter, uh, he has the uh, symbols that um, you can use, which is a check mark if they have like an answered it correctly, an X if they tried it but it was not correct, AMS for a silly mistake, and I don't think, and I don't think we talk about that S enough because that S is a game changer for my students. My students appreciate so much that they can make a silly mistake and it's not the end of the world because. In a you know in a in a traditional math classroom, silly mistakes that that are not related to the actual concept like knowledge, are just an X, right? And they're like, wow, we can make a um, mistake that doesn't actually impact this particular content knowledge, and I love that. And then of course he has an H for help from others or help from a teacher, a G if they answered it in a group, and a like an N if they just didn't try it, right? And it's really interesting because there's some amazing results that kind of show up once you implement all of these things, right? Yeah. So they found just by implementing these, I, I believe these were in isolation, not with other thinking practices in play. From our conversation with Peter, that's what I've gathered. And immediately once they started using these, like almost overnight, they saw 10 to 15% grade improvements yeah. in half to three quarters of the students. So it just turns out that a lot of students just needed to know where they are. And where they yeah. need to go and that has a big impact you know one of the things he he does discuss is like why not for more students as if 50 to 75 percent isn't enough yeah, students <laughs> seeing these kind of results but there's some good reasons for why it isn't more yeah for sure well the number one reason is because there are some students who just know where they are and where they are going and those students will get there and those were the 15 percent or whatever of students who like already knew these subtopics right they know them, it's fine. And then there are some students that are just happy with where they are and that's good enough. And it's funny too, because when we talk about the other 50 to 25% of students who just didn't change anything or there wasn't a, a 10 to 15% increase, this was not necessarily students who were like, like doing quite poorly. They were students who were just kind of doing okay. And they're like, that's good enough for me. I'm fine. Which is so funny because we all know these kids who just do enough to get the mark. And even if you tell them like, hey, but you could get this. They're like, I'm good. Yeah. And that's okay. You're going to have those students. But but you have provided them with as much information as possible for them to be successful. And then it really is their their decision to not do anymore, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, I think that's, it's a reality we're faced with. As much as we want to, as passionate as we are about math and teaching math and math class, we have to recognize that's not the experience of all of our students, but we still need to provide them with these these resources so they can improve should they choose to do so. 
Let's move into my favorite part of every chapter, the FAQs. FAQs, <laughs> FAQs here we come. Um, so the first one I want to talk about here is what about just giving students written feedback? Like we know feedback is really good. So what, what does Peter and the book say about this? Well, I think for students who identify all of the subtopics, this is really great. But also for the students who don't know those subtopics, it's just like that feedback isn't enough to tell the kids what's really going on. And like, I think it's also because, and this harkens back to even at the beginning of the book, text is a barrier for kids, right? So like, I think this map is kind of so neat and pretty and tidy that there's just enough text for the kids to understand. But it's like, if you solely give them just written feedback, there's a likelihood the kids aren't going to read it. And also like, but to be very clear, everybody still should be giving feedback, whether it's written or oral or, or something, because a big piece of this is kids need to know where they are, where they are going, but also, and Joe Bowler adds this in, or, and this is, I can't remember which article this was, but she says they need to know ways to close that gap. And that's where the feedback you give them orally every day as part of a thinking classroom, that's going to give them the ways to close the gap, right? But then also, and this is really funny though, because another frequently asked question on Twitter as of recently is, okay, so you let kids, you know, choose the questions on the test or choose to do whatever. What do you do when there's students who only try the mild or the basic part of the instrument? What do you do then? Yeah. Well, Keep in mind, I think that this is more of a problem with the students than the and their mindset rather than just the instrument, right? The bigger question here, and Peter talks about this too in his answer, is how do we get students to actually care about their learning? Like that's the big, that's the million dollar question. And honestly, I don't know if we've solved that question anywhere in education, but he doesn't get into this as much as I would have liked, but he does mention that in a lot of instances, just giving students these navigation instruments, they can really nudge students to a place where they know they can be successful. They feel a little less helpless and they know what to move, do moving forward. Kind of like what Joe Bowler talks about with that closing the gap, the tools yeah. to do that. Um, one question, and this one hit the nail on the head for me because I, as I was reading this the first time, I was like, don't we want our students to see math as a bunch of big ideas and the interconnectedness? And doesn't breaking this down just teach them that everything's a separate little thing? compartmentalizing mathematics what's the take on this yeah well and i think you are right like that is what we want we want kids to see math as this big beautiful connected thing right but peter says in the book it turns out that for students to see mathematics topics or subtopics as um, connected they first need to see them as distinct right and i think we've all heard this right like like we see kids think about math like you've said many many times just something to memorize and when somebody says um i'm bad at math they just put it as like a huge blanket statement because they think math is just one big thing right and they are almost always just talking about procedural fluency <laughs> however um i think it is important for yeah for students to recognize that in order for things to be connected that there needs to be distinctions to connect which I think is a beautiful way of saying this. And I and I agree when he had that like an FAQ, I was like, oh, this is great. Right. No, yeah, I kind of it kind of ties back actually to that variation theory we talked about with thin slicing. Right. They need to be able yeah. to see how things are the same and different. And then they can start to make the connections between things. Absolutely. Yeah. But now many people have said to us because and I'm pretty sure everybody has these like divisional goals. Right. But 
many teachers have said, yeah, but I post my learning outcome or my standard or the learning goal for the lesson at the very beginning. Isn't that fine? Like, you know, it's there. They can look at it whenever they want. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, I like Peter's response on this. In theory, yes. In practice, no. It doesn't mean anything. And <laughs> and I have my own beef with putting up the learning objective ahead of a lesson. Like, I want my students to uncover the math. I don't want to just cover the math. It's hard to discover something when we tell them, hey, here's what you're going to go discover. So I have that that little, you know, beef of it by myself. And it turns out, you know, he says in the book that these learning state, these learning goals mean very little to students. Today, we're going to talk about completing the square, but we're like in the middle of factoring. What are we talking about squares all? You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's really disjointed from the flow that I would ideally like to see in a math class. And if I'm being honest, I'm pretty sure that this practice of like posting that learning outcome ahead of time is more likely just a way to police teachers to ensure and enforce that they're teaching what they're being told to teach. I know a lot of teachers, myself included, the only time I would put this up is when I knew it was being formally observed because that was a box that had to get checked and and that's just the reality of it. But I like this line that Peter has in the FAQ. He says, until students get to experience mathematics and see how different tasks in a subtopic are connected and are different from other tasks, yeah. these kind of statements aren't going to mean anything anyways to them. So that's such a big piece to all of this, I think. I think so. And the other thing too is that with anything... When you just reference it once, it has to be a really continual thing. Because I think what what ge what generally happens, what I've seen, and I was this teacher, so I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm making fun of myself like five years ago. I would have it posted and then two months go by and I'd be like, oh no, I need to like change it. Ah, and I'd go back and I'd change it like right now. I'm like, oh, run away. So I just feel like that's kind of about like where we are. Yeah. Um, another question he talks about here is how do I know if I'm doing a good job helping students know where they're going? Like, how do I know if this is actually working for my students? And he gives us a really interesting idea that I had missed the first time I read through it. Me too. And what is that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. And I 100% agree. I actually missed this the first five times I read this book. Uh, <laughs> but he says that you should have your students make a review test that they know they would get 100% on if this was the real test. Then have them make a review test that they know they would get 50% on. And then you and your students will have a good idea of like what they know and like what they um, could take. And what I love about this, it reminds me of one of my favorite things to tell people, which is we know what we know and we know what we don't know, but we don't even know what we don't even know. And this really shows the students or it shows you that like what what the students don't even know, they don't even know. Yeah. Because you're like, oh my gosh, these kids missed this completely. They they didn't even put it on there. That's great, right? But then and then another challenge that a lot of people in my or in our division, but lots of people have said before is like students with alternative or like modified like learning plans, like what's the play for them? Yeah, and, and this is always tricky because it depends on that kid, right? Every kid is an individual and has different needs, and, and this is a blanket statement as it can get there. But but I found that these tools, these navigation instruments, are great to adapt for these students because it still gives them a clear path of where we want them yeah. to go. Maybe what's in their mild, medium, or spicy columns is slightly different than everyone else's. Yeah. And these are easy to adapt. Once you've got it, you can modify it really good. And, you know, we were talking before, you kind of mentioned, like, 
the other students might not even know. So those social pieces that come into play yeah. with kids being on those different programs in our classroom, we can hide a bit of that. No one has to be embarrassed that they're doing something a little bit differently. We're able to build that in to what we're already doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now let's let's talk about the practicality of these whole navigation instruments. We talked about how we would like to see, you know, if this has evolved elsewhere, we'd love to hear about that if somebody's got anything to share. But, you know, one of the challenges I have found when doing this, and to be fair, I don't have my own classroom. I haven't had a lot of time to practice this, develop this. So maybe you can give some more insight. But when I tried to do this, it's very difficult to, to keep track of what kids are doing achievement-wise in the moment while I'm juggling flow, while I'm planning for consolidation, while I'm maybe doing behavior um, rubrics like we just talked about in the previous chapter. How, how do we manage this logistically in and amongst all the moving parts of the thinking classroom? How, how do you handle it, Megan? Well, I actually agree. I think that it's really, really tough. And this was the one part that I've like had to put my own flavor on. Like very few things I've like gone off the beaten path here. But number one, whenever I want to be like, and like Peter mentioned this, like you have to be like, you have to kind of hunt for data like per day like because there's just too much data and you'll get overwhelmed you need to have kind of a plan in place for what you're you you are going to do but also like i'll make like and and we can put these in the show notes too but i'll put something for like a, a particular task so like if i was doing a task like i was doing the marching band task i know that that works for div divisibility and it works for different things like that um when I'm working with those kinds of things, I have an idea that it's like, oh, this will be like a intermediate to advanced divisibility from one to seven, right? Is what we're really like looking through. And so from there, I will have all the kids' names on the left-hand side. And then I'll use those symbols just as a way to try to gather data that way. But a large portion of the stuff I gather does not happen in the live moments. So my students will ask me to take pictures of their board, which is really good. And also I'll use like I'm exit slips, like anything formative throughout the whole time. And I think it also re relieves the pressure for them sometimes because I think they want to be able to, to make mistakes. And I don't want to, especially at the very beginning, to like be get, doing so much formative assessment at the beginning because I want them to feel free to make some mistakes every once in a while, right? And the other thing though, though too, that I... I swore it was in the book, but I don't know where it is. But the students have the data in like my class. I don't I don't have their data sheets. They have it in their notebooks. And that's because, and this is a Peterism, but it's the person who has the data is responsible for changing the data, right? And so I just always like the students to see it. And the kids seem to be way more invested in it if they have the, the data is what I found. Yeah, I like that. And if they they hold the data, like you said, then they can do something about it. And I think that's such a shift in how we typically approach data collection in our classrooms. We typically approach it for the, you know, purpose of summative assessment, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But in this case, I really like that if we get it in the hands of our students, then then they are the ones that need to do something about it. Obviously, you're doing something about it as the teacher, <laughs> but making sure they're looped in and aware at all times really reinforces this idea of knowing where they are currently, literally yep. as current as possible, and where they're going. That hasn't really changed, but it, we can update it as, as needed, which I really like. And there's some logistical ways of managing this. One of the things I've experimented with is kind of turning this into like what almost looks like a traditional grade book. All my students' names down the left side, and then the columns across the top are those subtopics. And then I kind of break each column into thirds where I can see which yeah. 
you know, if it's the mild, medium, spicy, basic, intermediate, advanced, whatever the case might be. So there's different ways about doing this. Um, I think that there's a space here for teachers to collaborate and team up on things. So we'd love to know if you're looking to connect with other teachers. Maybe it's even connecting with us. Maybe we can make a bank of some of these. Maybe we can collaborate or co-create some of these. I think that would be fantastic. Let us know. We're we're available. You can find us on please do Twitter, Threads, Facebook, whatever. We're we're around all the social hard. medias. We're not that hard to find, and we'd love to hear from anyone, anyways. And I think this is a good point for us to wrap up because otherwise, this episode's going to turn from half hour, which is longer than it should be, into an hour in no time. So um, very fast. Yeah, very fast. This can get uh, into a very deep conversation, which we hope to continue to have outside of the podcast here. Mm -hmm. um, but our next episode is going to be all about Chapter Fourteen. Summative assessment, oh. reporting, these are the big ones that they get heated when we start to think about this and talk about these. And it's such a shift from what has traditionally happened in the math classroom. So we're really excited to talk about that, talk about some of the things we've learned along the way as well. So we hope you'll tune in for that episode too. Yeah. See you guys. Thanks for tuning in to Think, Thank, Thunk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode. And as always, keep thinking. Keep thinking and keep thunking.